Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. I think the three act structure gets a bad rap. So I just want to say in the beginning, this isn't just an arbitrary division of your film into three parts and calling each part an act. Just like any story has a beginning and a middle and an end. In essence, we're asking, what does the protagonist want? Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 117, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. In our last episode, I discussed some updates with Elvis of Cambodia, our doc project that we moved here to Cambodia to finish work on. One of those updates was that we were getting set to finish a crowdfund campaign that we were running to help pay for animation sequences in our film. We were setting out to raise an amount of $8,000 in 18 days. I am happy to say that we were able to achieve this amount and some in our allotted amount of time. It was a good solid campaign where we reconnected with some people who have been with us since the beginning of our journey with this film and we also made some new friends who now know of our film and will be eager to see it when it comes to their town next year. If I don't sound super excited or that I'm jumping up and down about this, it's only because this all feels like business as usual or that it went according to plan really exactly how I expected it to do, which is to say that we would raise at least $8,000 in the 18 days that we set out to do so. Now, I have immense gratitude for all of this, but I'm also not getting too high or worked up about it, if that makes sense. I was not at all surprised by the outcome. As I said, the outcome is what we knew it would be. You see, I knew from experience that we could pull this off. It wasn't the usual often recommended campaign length of 30 days. It was, in fact, 12 less days than this. But due to what we'd learned from prior campaigns and because of the confidence that both Steph and I have developed from the direct experience of those campaigns, together with the belief that we have about our film, neither one of us really wavered in our belief that we would secure the funds that we needed for animation on our film. Which is what I'd like to talk with you about today. Actually, what both Steph and I would like to talk to you about today. We know that a number of you out there could use a quick cash infusion in your doc film. That right about now would be a great time to make a relatively quick $8,000 that could be used in any number of ways on your film. Maybe you need an additional few days of filming that could pay for your crew. Maybe you too could use some animation. Or maybe you've already shot your film and you could use some money to pay for an editor or yourself to get started editing on the film. I'm sure there are a zillion ways that you could find to use the $8,000. I'll let you figure that one out. But Steph and I are here today because we want to see you have the same success that we did recently on our campaign. And we know that we can help you with that. We know that we can help you get some quick money into your doc film project, whatever stage that you might be at. So we're going to give you three things that worked well for us and one thing that didn't work so well in our most recent campaign. So first things first, welcome back to the show, Stephanie Vincenti. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. 
So as you heard at the intro there, obviously we're going to be talking a bit about the the success of our, our very recent 18-day uh, crowdfund campaign that we ran to raise animation funds for our film. There's a few things that we can talk about today that worked really well for us. And then, of course, uh, we'll also add an item that maybe didn't work so well for us. I think we just start from the top. And, and what's the first thing that you think we should talk about, Steph? Yeah, so we've got three things that worked really well for us. And one thing that didn't go badly for us, but had we done it, would have made it even easier for us. So let's share number one first, which is we created a master breakdown ahead of time of all our planned content, which included our social media postings, our emails, our announcements, our videos. As much as we could, we had tried to structure the whole campaign over the whole 18 days um, ahead of time. And we put it into this master breakdown so we could create graphics, we could create videos, we knew what we were going to be telling people, we created blog posts. We did as much ahead of time as possible because we recognized from previous campaigns, as much as you think you're going to have time during the campaign itself, when it's in progress, you actually are so busy and it's so consuming, doing so many other things. And also you want to have flexibility and it's much easier to have that if you have a structure and a plan in place. So did we follow this master breakdown to the letter? No, but we had it and we had the content that we needed for it. And then we got to choose, okay, this feels right. Let's put that out. This doesn't feel right. Maybe we should move that a few days. Um, and just, we had this backup which just give us a lot of structure and a lot of clarity and just really took the pressure off of us a lot. So specifically, let's talk about what we were doing this in. Did we do it like in Microsoft Word document? Did we do it in, in an Excel spreadsheet? Were we using Google Docs? What, why don't we talk a little bit about what we used, what worked for us? So you can really structure this however you want to do it. I mean, you could even do it with a paper and pen if you like, which is, I love to write things out. Yeah. But um the best thing to do is to get it online in some way or on your laptop in some way because you're going to be able to move things around a lot easier. Yeah. We used Google Docs because that's the, the document we use right now because we like to be able to share content. Yeah. But really, you can just do it in anything. And it's just a basic kind of simple... Actually, it wasn't Google Docs. It's Google Sheets, isn't yeah, it? Right, the Excel right. kind of version. Um, because we want to be able to share it. Okay, now there's going to be a number of listeners out there who are saying, look, Chris and Steph, it's one thing to be able to run an 18-day, like a quick one that we did, right? You know, the recommended is, is generally 30 days, and you'll get that from, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Seed and Spark. They often recommend, and they have found through practice and research and such that 30 days is a great way to do it. So, you know, we're saying that we can help you do it in 18 days, right? That's certainly what we did. And 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 my point is this, that there are going to be listeners out there that are saying, well, that's great for you guys because you have probably an established uh, email list, right? Or you have people, in this case, you know, we ran a successful $20,000 one at the outset of Elvis of Cambodia. So we had all of those people to access. So what would you say, I guess, Steph, what would you say to these people who are like, look, we don't have an established email list prior to this, or we didn't, you know, we weren't making our film for five years before we ran an 18 day crowdfund. How can we do it? You know, how can we do it so quickly? Okay. So, and this actually takes us to the second thing that we did, right, was we reached out to previous donors and that definitely was very helpful to have, but it isn't essential. It really isn't essential. Even if you've never fundraised before for your film, you can still run a successful campaign. And in a way you have a lot more untapped potential. 
The biggest hurdles that you have that you face if you're running your first crowdfunding campaign are credibility. People don't know you, right? They don't know if they can trust you. And film awareness. People might not know about your film. Um, And that's what you really need to focus on and overcome if you're going to run a successful crowdfunding campaign or any sort of fundraising, really. You have to get the word out about your film and people have to be able to trust you. So when you're creating your content, when you're deciding on your platform, when you're building your launch runway, which includes your, your master breakdown, right? But also includes anything such as forming partnerships, connecting with associations, building a following on social media, building an email list. These are all things that if you do ahead of time are going to make your campaign so much easier. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. It, it's one thing to say, you know, if you've done these things ahead of time, but we need to be specific with people, right? How much time do you, th- what kind of lead time are we talking about here? We obviously needed less because we'd been, you know, we've been doing this film for five years. And so we have a little bit of an email list, right? We, we've we run a successful crowdfund campaign prior to this. So we had access to some people, right? But what what, again, the people that don't have that easy access, what kind of lead time are they going to need for this? Well, and then I would push back to you and say, yeah, we did this time. But the first time we ran a campaign in 2014, we had 300 people on our in, in our Facebook group. Right. We had zero email list and we raised $20,000. Right. So, but we did a lot more prep time and we did a 30-day campaign. Right. For sure. If you're going to run a crowdfunding campaign and you haven't done one before or you don't have a list from other fundraising events that you've run for this film or previous films, then I would definitely say you need to run it for longer. I would recommend that you run it for 30 days. And unlike what we did, we ran our campaign on our website, our film website this time, but our previous two campaigns we had um, run on established platforms. And just by association of running your campaign on a platform like that, that gives you a certain amount of credibility. So for sure, if this is your first campaign, people don't know about your film, then we would totally recommend you extend your campaign for 30 days and that you definitely choose a platform outside of your own film website but what you asked me about lead time and what I would say to that is obviously the more you can give to this the better I would say at least a month to six weeks or four to six weeks if you can do slightly longer than that as well perfect the more it's and it's not so much like the amount of time but the amount of attention you're able to give to it if you run a full-time job obviously you're going to have less time. If you're working at this full time, then you're going to be able to do it in a lot less time. So that's something to bear in mind. But also, how many people do you have helping you? Do you have a team? Do you have other people that are involved in this? So I'd say there's no definite amount of time, like, okay, a month is enough time. It's more, what are you doing within that time? Who are you reaching out to? What are you building? And that's why I said before, when you come to build your campaign and your pre-launch, be thinking about how am I going to build credibility? How am I going to build film awareness? That's your focus. So as much as you can do in your pre-launch of that for any amount of time, one, two, three months, awesome. And that's what you should be focusing on. Okay. And so the third thing that I know we're going to talk about in terms of the success of of our, you know, of our crowdfund campaign and really any of our crowdfunding that we've done. And in many ways, any of the fundraising we have done, um, is really the mindset, right? And we've talked about that a number of times in the show, or we've talked about that recently, I think, in this season, this idea of a money mindset. And it's not something to be taken lightly at all, is it? 
I don't think people give enough credit to what happens in their minds and the in terms of the success of anything they do. But certainly when it comes to money, um, it can be a tricky subject. Especially for us doc filmmakers. <laughs> right. And also running a campaign is, trust me, doesn't matter how well you run your campaign. And this happened to us. It's a roller coaster. It really is. Anyone who's run a crowdfunding campaign would tell you the same thing. It's such, it messes with your head. Because you start off strong. And yeah. if you're fortunate, <laughs> if you do the right things, if you push, if you do the work, if you have it, get it right, you end strong. Very strong. I mean, we ended the last two days of our campaign. We made 50, almost 50% of our donations. Yeah. So that's how important it is. But there was definitely a middle part where we, there were a few days where we didn't receive anything. There was nothing. And previous experience tells us, okay, don't worry. I mean, we never lost faith, did we? No, not at all. I mean, we, we knew this from experience and anything we've ever read that that's just the natural course of, the, of these uh, these crowdfund campaigns. A very, very large chunk comes in at the end because all of this builds on itself. Right. But if you don't know that, if you've never done it before, yeah. really, it can get you panicking. down. You can be panicking yeah, and get down. You're right. Yeah. And then and the thing is, the final push, the final few days yeah. are so important. So if you're going into that feeling def- defeated already, yeah. then, you know, it's going to be a struggle. You have to keep the momentum going. And so a lot of that comes from how you're thinking and feeling going into this and then coming out of it. Imposter syndrome can set in. All sorts of things can happen. And You know, it happens to every filmmaker, but as much as you can before ahead of time, having your mindset in the right place where you need it to be and just knowing and just knowing having that belief that you're going to make it, it it really does play a big part. So one thing that I'll say is, again, there may be listeners, there's going, there's bound to be a number of listeners out there who have not run a campaign, right? Or a successful crowdfund campaign. And so, you know, we have the luxury of having run a few of these prior, and so we know how it goes. We know sort of the ebb and flow of these campaigns. And so what would you say to the listener out there who's like, look, I haven't run one before, so I'm going to be up against this, right? My mindset might not be in the right place for this. What can we say to them to help them through this? Well, I would say, first of all, know that you're definitely going to go through something. It's not just going to be smooth sailing. If it were, we would just run three-day campaigns and everyone would just donate, right? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. And that's why we we do these things over a period of time. It's an ebb and a flow. And I think just knowing that is part of the battle, right? You're not alone. It happens to us all. Um, Secondly, I think the more you, you plan and are strategic with what you're putting out and what you're creating the more confident you're going to feel because you're going to have that next point. You're going to have that next announcement, that next um, post that you can put out that's going to boost things, like that email that you've written that you're super happy and stoked about to send out that you know it's going to encourage people. And then also I would say know that you have these things in your arsenal that you prepared ahead of time. Influencers, press, organizations, so many different ways to get the word out about your film. Basically, what I'm saying is the more groundwork you put in, the more strategic you are, the more organized you are. It helps because during those lulls, you're not just scrambling like you don't know what to do. You have a plan, right? You have a plan. You keep executing on the plan and just know that that last 48 hours, you are dedicated to your campaign. You don't make any other plans. You just knuckle down and get it done and uh, and you can do it. It's a great way to raise money for your film. It really is. And so now we get to sort of the fourth item that we wanted to talk about. And this was what we didn't actually do well in this campaign or really for us, <laughs> what we didn't do at all. 
Okay, so when we decided to run this campaign, we actually decided really quickly to do it. Yeah. And we really um denied. We're like, do we really want to do this? Um, and we decided we did. And we did it within a week. Like, it was super quick. So... So we built up our master breakdown. We decided what we wanted to put out um, and who we were going to connect with and, and blah, 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 and how we were going to run it, like where we were going to run it, which is on our website. But what we didn't do, which we had done in the past, and we would definitely recommend you do, is the promotional outreach ahead of time. And obviously I've mentioned it a few times, but that really can make or break your project. And like I said, it really will affect your mindset too because you need that push out into the public as much as possible to get awareness about your film happening especially if you've not run a crowdfunding before like being out there talking like the first crowdfund we ran the first one for this film we were talking to press we were we did so much ahead of time we had so many different things happening that were getting the word out outside of our circle and that's really what you need to be doing it's awesome like especially the first time you run a crowdfund you might have like a lot of friends or family or community members donate and that's awesome it's great but if you don't go outside of that circle you're really not going to make your your goal and you don't want to just crowdfund within that circle. You want to have fans of the film, learn about your film. You want to build up that relationship with the people that are really going to want to see your film. And so that would be the number four. We didn't do it this time, but we totally recommend you do do it, is to do a proper pre-launch promotional outreach. And to be fair, we'd already in many ways built up partnerships. We'd built up the outreach um, things uh, things of this nature, and we really b- built up a number of fans over the past five plus years since we initially ran our successful twenty thousand dollar Kickstarter crowdfund for Elvis of Cambodia, and so we felt pretty comfortable that we didn't need that huge amount of lead time or promotions built up. And um, and yeah, of course our instincts were correct in in this instance. But as Steph alluded to, if you haven't done this prior, then then certainly you know building into that lead time and promotions ahead of ahead of time is going to be uh, fairly critical. And I feel like we're making this sound like such a lot of work and such hard work. And to an extent, it is kind of because you have to give so much to it. People aren't just going to give you their money straight away. And just you put up a campaign and there, they, there you go. Like there are all those donations. Yeah. You have to do a certain amount of work. But I also want you to know that it is so exciting. It's one of the anyone who has yeah. run a campaign, a successful campaign. It's so exciting and it never, you never lose that spark. Like when donations start coming through and like you reach the goal at the end, it feels so good. Yeah. It's about so much more than just raising money. Right. And it's even about so much more than building an audience for your film. It's these connections are what propel you forward. Like it gives you a rejuvenated sense of confidence about your film project because you know, you've, you've seen firsthand that people are out there supporting it. They want to, they believe in your film and they want to see you be successful making it. And obviously it gives you the resources, the money that you need to be able to move forward, which just feels amazing as well. So yeah, it's a win-win for sure. Um, And so after our campaign this time around, the next day we didn't do anything, did we? We literally just like (laughs) took a breather because we just needed that break. Um, But then the day after that, I decided, you know what? I'm going to build a course out of this. I'm going to make like a mini course Mm. so people can know exactly what we did and exactly what they can do to um, run a successful crowdfunding campaign. So that's exactly what I've done. So the course is called How to Raise 8K in 18 Days for Your Documentary Film. We basically, we've built a five-module course which 
goes through everything from mindset to planning to prep to the live campaign and then the post campaign. And it literally has everything that we did for our campaign, every blog post, every announcement, every video, every email we sent out, donation letters we sent out to previous donors, um, the contributions that we received, when we received them, how much they were for, everything that was involved in our campaign, but also all the information that we've gathered through three successful campaigns, whether we did it in this campaign or not. So if you're interested in running a crowdfunding campaign, whether it's going to run this year or early next year, you can get access to this course from the 15th of November. 15th of November will go live on the website. And to find that, you go to thedocumentarylife.com forward slash courses. Also, I just want to say that to me, this isn't a course. I didn't build this to be a course because I know I've, I've signed up for courses myself. This really is a building of your campaign. And I just want to let people know as well, because we really, really want people to to take this course and work with it and, and really apply it to their own film, we're actually opening a Facebook group up for one month from the date that the course launches officially on the 15th of November. So it'll run until the 15th of December. And uh, we'll be in there answering any questions that you have about running a crowdfunding campaign, anything that you've seen in the course that you want to discuss further, any additional information we can give you so that you can run your best crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, I think that this is an important thing to note here is that you will have 30 days from November 15th, 30 days open access to ask Steph and I anything you'd like about running your specific crowdfunding campaign for your documentary film. And really, we can't wait to learn about you and your doc project and to help you raise money for your film. And I just want to say, regardless of whether you join us on this or not, I hope that you found something in this episode, this section that is helpful to you and maybe opens your mind up to the power of crowdfunding and and what that entails. But I also want to let you know that I'm super excited to welcome people into this course and to work alongside you guys and to really help you build a successful crowdfunding campaign. It's such an exhilarating experience. And if we get to help in that, that's exactly what we built the documentary life for. So just to clarify, if you are on our email list or a member of our community group, then you won't need to do anything. You'll be notified when you can enroll and receive the early bird discount on Friday, the 8th of November. That offer will be open for one week until we officially open the doors on Friday, the 15th of November. If you aren't currently a member of our community and would like to know when you can enroll and receive the early bird discount, then simply go to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses and you can join the waitlist for how to raise 8K in 18 days for your documentary film. Right around the corner, we're going to have a conversation about another topic that so, so many doc filmmakers grapple with, and that is how to structure one's story for their documentary film. And we'll be having that conversation with one of the world's leading documentary story consultants, Karen Everett, who runs New Doc Editing, a company that has pioneered ways to tailor screenwriting principles to nonfiction films. Oh yeah, Doc Lifer, this is going to be a great segment. It's coming up next here on The Documentary Life.
Karen Everett is one of the world's leading documentary story consultants. Under her vision, her company New Doc Editing has pioneered ways to tailor screenwriting principles to nonfiction films. Author of documentary editing, Karen taught editing for 18 years at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, named the number one documentary program by Documentary Magazine. It's a brief intro, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot more of your background. First of all, Karen Everett, I'm very excited to have a conversation about all things editing here on The Documentary Life. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Karen, what came first for you? Was it documentary or was it editing? It's mm, a great question. Uh, it was making documentaries, mm. uh, and then uh, uh, I would ed- often edit my own documentaries, and one documentary in particular... Uh, back when I was uh, in my 30s and still making lots of mistakes, I had 200 hours of footage that I just didn't know what to do with. And so <laughs> I did two things that catapulted me into uh, really be, becoming uh, an editor's editor, yeah. in other words, a story consultant. Yeah. Um, the first was to take a class by, have you ever heard of Robert McKee? Yes, He's, of course. Uh, sort of a Hollywood, uh, back in the day, a screenwriting guru. So I took oh, yeah. a story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I really understood for the first time what a story is. Yeah. It's a protagonist on a quest um, in the face of great odds. And I understood the three-act structure. And then the second thing I did was I hired a story consultant. Uh, she was an editor herself, mm. um, Deborah Hoffman, who edited uh, the Academy Award-winning the Times of Harvey Milk, yeah. and I learned so much sitting with her. Uh, for example, how to, what to keep, what to cut. Um, so we've got that 200 hours down to, to probably two hours, yeah. and then 90 minutes, and eventually a, a feature doc that uh, played at more than 100 film festivals. So I was fascinated with that process, and mm-hmm. uh, that's when I started my. I left teaching at UC Berkeley and started my own business, New Doc Editing. What was it about the process that really spoke to you that you felt like, you know what, I'm going to start this business, New Doc Editing, and I'm, I'm going to try to get this information out to people? For one thing, I was um, I had been teaching at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, which at the time was the top documentary program for 18 years. Mm. And I was a little burned out, I was looking for something to do, mm. something new and creative. And I knew that there were so many filmmakers who had been in my shoes and didn't really know what it meant to tell a story. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of geeky. I like to organize things. So <laughs> <laughs> it comes naturally. Um, I'm actually not a very good verbal storyteller because I don't remember the details well, but, um, sounds like me. <laughs> I, yeah, really? <laughs> oh yeah. But I, I love to write. I have lots of blogs and, um, I am eventually ended up hiring four editors to, uh, six now who are on staff that help other filmmakers, edit their docs. I mean, it's so cliche in our industry uh, that story is all important, but really what is a story? Mm. And and that fascinated me. Mm. So I did something I, I didn't see anybody else doing, which was to adapt screenwriting principles, mm. things like an inciting incident or a midpoint or a reversal to films about real life. And it's never going to be perfect because it's, you know, it's like a science in the screenwriting world, but it's, it's great to, it's, it's more like a, 
an approximation yeah. of the three-act structure. And why don't we just get right into that, because I know that that's uh, thematically a big part of New Doc, is, is the usage of the three-act structure. How do you bring that to documentary? You know, I think, I think the three-act structure gets a bad rap. Mm. So I just want to say in the beginning, this isn't just an arbitrary division of your film into three parts yeah. and calling each part an act. Just like any story is a beginning and a middle and an end, each act does something very distinct. Each act looks different. It's been around since Aristotle. In essence, we're asking, what does the protagonist want? That's the most important question you can ask yourself. And that question gets raised in Act One, which is about, well, the textbook length is 25% of a, of, of a film. So we're learning who the characters are, the setting, and then there's a, a very important scene in Act One called the inciting incident or the catalyst event, which is uh, some event that throws the protagonist's world out of balance. Yeah. And out of that event grows a desire to achieve or get something. Now, that, that's Hollywood's for narrative films has a, uh, a rule, according to McGee, that the inciting incident has to, it's so important to launching the quest that it has to unfold visually on screen. And that presents a first major problem for many of us as documentary <laughs> filmmakers. <laughs> it's usually already happened and no one was around to film it. Yeah. So some solutions include uh, finding news events, a news footage that can act as an inciting incident. Um, for example, Lyndon Johnson announcing no more increase of troops to Vietnam yeah. uh, was an inciting incident for Chicago Five. Sometimes I know your film, um, Elvis in Cambodia, mm. uh, you're using, I don't know if you're using it for the inciting incident, but you're using animation reenactments, but usually it's, it's, uh, an interview. So you've got a really good storyteller yeah. stating what happened to set them on a quest. Um, and then just quickly act two, act two is about 60% of the film. We're presenting complications as the protagonist tries to reach their goal. Mm. It's because it's the longest act, the challenge is how to keep, I mean, ideally each challenge is more daunting than the last. Mm. And that's easy to do if you're writing a screenplay, but yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're, you know, real life doesn't unfold <laughs> that way. So yeah, that's where, you know, we, we know that a chronicle doesn't have to unfold chronologically and we can use backstories uh, and other techniques. And then act three, which is um, a real bugger for many Verite filmmakers, I don't know if you're facing this or not, but I imagine many of your uh, listeners are. In about 15% of the film, we want to present a climax scene, yeah. accelerate action until this most riveting emotional moment uh, where we have a greatest effort by the protagonist to reach their goal. And a lot of filmmakers just don't have a climax yeah. scene. So oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking my language at the moment. <laughs> oh, really? My life. <laughs> You're definitely hitting a number of <laughs> things at the moment. It's good. And do you think you'll have to keep, I mean, there are a couple of choices. You could just not make a film, which nobody wants to do. Yeah, You yeah. could keep, because this is a Verte doc, right, that you're making? Yeah, so it, it is a feature doc, and it, there are definitely plenty of Verte elements to it. You know, our biggest struggle, Karen, our biggest challenge, let's say that, it's, it's better put, our biggest challenge, and it's one that we knew, obviously, and embraced from the very beginning, is that the key central figure, uh, our, our singer, Sinsi Samut, uh, was executed during the, 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 the Khmer, uh, the Cambodian genocide. And there literally is one single piece of archival footage that exists of him. And so while our film is certainly about him, it's also about 
in many ways, even more so about the people that are connected to to his music and his legacy. And so we're really, in many ways, telling the story through these through these people. But it has absolutely been wrought with challenges from the beginning, not the least of which is the fact that they're just, you know, we never had access to, to him or, or any archival mm-hmm. footage whatsoever of him. So we've had to be very creative, I think, as you were alluding to, to earlier. The thing is, even if people have plenty of knowledge that there probably isn't any footage of him out there, regardless, they're expecting to have some kind of experience, I think, with him, right? Mm -hmm. And so we bear that responsibility, and I know that you can relate to this, we bear the responsibility as storytellers to be able to bring some sort of... um, some sort of emotion and some sort of experience uh, to the screen. And in this case, that involves involves him. One of the things that I would ask you, Karen, is in thinking of in in, in talking about the three act structure, um, how can we assure that our docs? And again, I think as you're saying right here, even to me in some ways. Uh, a lot of our listeners are well down the road of having shot their doc, and maybe they're at the outset of pro- post-production or headlong into it, and they're finding that, oh, I don't know if I have a true narrative arc or a true story in the sense of a three-act structure. I'll ask two mm-hmm. questions out of this, Karen. I'm curious, okay. are there docs that you think, you know what? it may not be appropriate to have this true three-act structure in a documentary or for this particular documentary. Or uh, what can we do to help kind of find or shape that narrative arc once we've already been well down the road of shooting and we feel like, ah, don't know if I have that. <laughs> Those are great questions. Let me take the, the last one first. Okay. So how do I know if I have a story-driven or it's often called a character-driven documentary? Mm. Um I, I mean, I would ask a couple of questions. Do you have a character who wants something, something badly, mm. but that, you know, something that's, that's difficult to achieve? Mm. That's the definition of a protagonist. Yeah. And if you're early enough, this is not for those who've finished yeah. filming, um, how can you find, how can you shape a, a goal, a quest, a desire into at least a, what I call a micro manifestation of that desire? Mm. Also, this is from a screenwriting guru, Dara Marks, who I, I adore. Um, she says that an inner character transformation often accompanies achieving an outer goal. So I would ask, and, and she asked this as well, is there something that your protagonist can do by the end of the film that mm. they can't do at the beginning? Mm. Often filmmakers haven't thought about an inciting incident, but they still have a story. This was the case with... Um, the uh, the Russian woodpecker, which won the grand jury prize at Sundance a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I was story consulting on it. I met one of my editors there, um, and we had to. It was. Uh, it took about twenty minutes of conversation to discover uh, several possible events that could act as an inciting incident to get the quest off the ground. And they ended up using one of them. And Karen, did they have that event on camera? Did you guys come to the realization that they had that or did they have to then kind of go create it after, after the fact? Yeah, it's a great question. My recollection is that they did a pickup interview to get the audio, the storytelling of it. And then they used archival footage of a a pilot in a plane, um, uh, for visuals. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Perfect. That's a great question. <laughs> now, if you're, if none of this is ringing a bell with the f- footage you have, mm. it may be that you have, um, 
what I would call an essay style documentary, simply meaning that your documentary will be structured not through a protagonist on a quest, but around ideas. Mm. And there are many ways to structure those kinds of films. Um, an easy one would be to come out with this in the, and I'll call these parts to differentiate them from acts, but in, in part one, present your central thesis. So maybe it's global warming is real. Uh, in part two, which yeah. is the bulk of the film, support the thesis with statistics and stories, you know, sea levels are rising, uh, hurricanes are increasing. And then in part three, which, you know, might be shorter, now that you've proven your central thesis, now that we know the global warming is real, for example, what are we going to do about it? Mm. And can you guess which film I'm I'm describing? Which documentary I'm describing? I assume uh, I assume the Al Gore film years a few years back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the first one, in, an inconvenient truth. Yes, inconvenient truth. Uh, Thank you. Right. That was one of the first docs to include a call to action at the end. Now, interestingly, like many do uh, essay style documentaries, it does include elements of. Um, of a character-driven documentary. Yeah. For example, there's an inciting incident when Al Gore describes his son getting uh, injured in a car accident and coming close to death, mm. and that made him realize this political stuff, you know, running for vice president, it, it, it's not as important to me as, um, if I'm recalling this correctly, as as global warming. So he's turned his attention to that global, uh, uh, that, that slideshow that went, right. went around the world. That's right, right. And I, I should add, a lot of documentaries are hybrids of the two, uh, but usually one structure will lead. So if you have a, uh, a character-driven documentary, yeah. you'll use the plot points as jumping-off points to explore ideas. Got it. And if you're leading with a, uh, a central thesis or a central question or a series of evolving questions, like many of Michael Moore's documentaries, mm. you'll use anecdotes, so little mini stories, to illustrate the ideas that you're presenting. Now, we're going to start to geek out a little bit here in editing, and I, and I know that you'll appreciate this, and a lot of <laughs> our, our listeners will as well. Often when I'm so I come from an editing background initially as well, Karen. So it's also coming, mm -hmm. you know, editor to editor, I think, and doc filmmaker to doc filmmaker. I'm curious uh, what your general process is or if there is a difference between constructing a paper edit, if you will, versus going in and starting to pull clips from interviews and, and making an assemble edit. Do you have, I'm sure you guys obviously have a, a process, which you'll share with me what that is, but I'm curious what your thoughts are, paper edit versus just sitting down and pulling sound bites and assembling. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I'll preface it with, we, we have a, um, because post-production is usually the most expensive line item in a documentary budget yeah. we have a special accelerated post schedule that, right. that that aims to edit a feature doc in 10 weeks instead of you know eight months yeah. and so to speed this up we have we have some tips for logging and, and editing quickly um so transcripts are absolutely important and uh you know hopefully you have software for that like trint.com or rev.com rev uh, dot com. Yeah. Uh, we often will bypass the paper edit unless it is just a really wonky, talk-heavy, interview-heavy uh, documentary. Ah. So, which that's by the way, that's very interesting to me because I, I thought for sure you were going to fully encourage the paper edit. So this is great. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> I can't wait to hear. 
It's, it's not that it's bad. It is preferable if you have the resources to take more time editing. Yeah. And if you do, that's great. If you imagine that, um, you know, the typical budget is 80,000 for, uh, uh, an editor, yeah. um, you know, in our world, it's more like 30,000. So yeah. we don't have the luxury under that scenario yeah. to, to do everything exactly right. However, um, let me, let me suggest a, a few things that, um, do, work without the paper edit, we do start by gathering um, footage into specific sequences. Uh, you may be familiar with the term string outs. Yeah. Um, for, for us, a string out is, it's basically an individual sequence for every important verte scene. Yeah. And the trick here is inc include only the key moments. Mm. As one of my, my editors once said, you know, it's easy enough for the, the editor to come in and, and, and find the surrounding clips to build a scene. Yeah. But we ask directors and their assistants to come to us with having already culled all their footage down to 30 hours. Ah, so in the Verte sequence of a baseball game, yeah. we want to see the home run hit yeah. and the <laughs> sliding safely to home, yeah. uh, not the batter warming up. And then, um, you know, you'll have sequences for Verte footage, excuse me, I said that, home movies, archival footage. And then for thematic sort of essay-based documentaries, I would start with a list of the film's top seven to 10 key takeaway ideas. And as you're going, as one's going through the footage, anything that doesn't relate to one of those ideas gets put in a sort of a, a, a trash sequence. I, I often call it NTK uh, question mark need to know. Okay. Uh, do we really need to know this or is it tangential? Okay. And then you create a sequence for each main idea. Okay. To geek out even a little bit more here, let's talk to the doc filmmaker who has, you know, hundreds of hours of footage or say a couple of hundred hours of footage, right? What are some of the first mm. things that you recommend that they should be doing in terms of, you know, obviously there's the logging of footage, but even maybe even before that, how are we setting up the infrastructure of our edit to be able to make some sense into what we're doing, including the whole process itself of editing. Mm. Well, are you talking about, for, for example, sequences and bins? Or are you talking more about story structure? I think sequences and bins. Let's let's geek out in that way. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, geeky. How fun. Totally. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, funny. I I I have this uh, book called Documentary Editing, which I need to update because it was last. I used Final Cut Seven uh, as the. Uh, this description for, for bins and, and sequences. Oh yeah. And, um, I know the book well. So. <laughs> <update now. laughs> yes. One idea for, I like to collect footage in sequences, not as clips, not yeah. as sub clips. Yeah. So, um, your bins may have, so you might have a bins, for example, for verte footage. And within that you'll have several verte sequences. Yeah. What's very helpful is if you, uh, and this is for project files as well, is if you label those sequences um, starting with a date, a six-digit date. Mm. And what this will do is it will put all of your sequences in uh, chronological order. Uh, so I would start with the Verite sequences. I would do it by the, the day it was shot. Yeah. So you can't do like, you know, so today's October 6, 2019. So you wouldn't do 10, 06, 19 yeah. because it won't flow in a numerical order yeah, or chronological right. order. <laughs> you have to do 19 for the year, then 10 for the month, and then 06 for the day. Yeah. So that's a really geeky thing. Totally. I love it. And then uh, 
you know, I, I think um, I, I, this comes pretty instinctually to to most people who tend to be um, uh, anal, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. myself. But for others, it's not. So you, you want to have like a bin for all your interviews. And within that, you'll have um, you can have uh, either the best, you know, the highlights of the interviews or preferably the, as I mentioned before, the topic sequences. D- am I making sense? Oh, yeah. So, so oh, yeah. all these ideas, um, a bin for photos and you can, you know, if you want to put photos by person, that those could be how you break it down by sequence. Right. A bin for archival footage. Um, eventually you'll have bins for things like, um, sub, uh, excuse me, lower thirds and, yeah. uh, music and temp narration. Subtitles. Um, yeah. what else am I missing? That's, that's really important. Uh, you know, graphics. Uh, I mean, those might, lower graphics. thirds might even be in graphics, but you might have, you know, obviously animated animation sequences at some point or motion graphics or I'll, I'll break, I'll break down, you know, I'll have a bin of odd, like sort of, I call it audio sources. And within that I'll have, you know, music, I'll have temp tracks. I'll have, you know, depending if I have to sync my footage with audio, I might have the raw audio files in there. Yeah. 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 Excellent. And, and it's, it's interesting. Those Karen. Are all great. Yeah. It's, it's like you said, some of us are, I think are, are sort of, I don't know, dare I say built naturally to be anal that way with our edits. And I think it tends to be people who are editors or who have been brought up as editors, but it may not come as natural to the doc filmmakers out there who maybe don't come from an editing background. So these, even these little granular suggestions um, can go a long way in helping us kind of set up our infrastructure for our edits. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the director and the editor. What are, and by doing that, what are some of the editors, and, and, and by the way, this is a direct question from one of our listeners, and I love it because it's, um, it's something that I think that a number of us come up against. What are editors' pet peeves when dealing with directors? And how, to keep, how do you keep the editor happy and motivated through a long and difficult edit? This is great, right? I love Those it. are so, such generous editor oriented questions. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, oh gosh. Always say thank you to before, during and after. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, to, to editors are so hardworking and they really, in many cases deserve the, the credit of co-director, although we don't push that. It's, it is the most important relationship in the film yeah. among the, you know, the, the primary uh, crew. That's right. And it has to be a relationship of trust based on a couple things. One is the clear cut understanding that the director has final cut. They Mm. are in charge Mm. and the editor will have lots of ideas about how to best execute the director's vision and they need to be heard. So hear them out. Uh, Same goes with a story consultant. You don't have to agree with everything, but a good editor will fight passionately for what they Envision is working well, especially where to make cuts, which directors who fall in love with the material won't want to. Yeah. And then they know when to back off. Yeah. So if, I've, if I'm working as a story consultant with a director and we've done a couple consultations and I've mentioned something twice yeah. and they're not having it, I won't keep, keep mentioning it. Ah, right, um, right. I think an, another thing that is helpful um, is to get a sense of whether, if you're the director, whether you're you yourself 
are more of an extrovert or an introvert. Mm. The same with your editor. A lot of editors tend to be introverts, yeah. meaning that they get their batteries recharged and are most creative by working alone and then presenting the work. Yes. So you know what, Karen? Along those lines, and this is an interesting one. I, I t- I'm a I can be a fairly extroverted person. I can also be introverted, but when it comes to the edit, at least for the first go. I like to be hunkered in my area and I like to be allowed to edit the film and then present it. But I've also worked with other directors who want to be sat right down beside you. And that's a top that's always been a fairly difficult one for me to navigate because I don't feel like I'm at my best unless I'm on my own at least providing a first cut because huh. Uh, and I've, and I've, and I've, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, because there are directors who will sit down beside you and want to be an intimate part of that edit. But what do we do as editors if we feel like, look, at least for the first go, um, allow me to do my work and allow me to do what you've hired me to do um, before you sit down beside me? Is that is that something, a conversation that you would feel comfortable having? Or do you feel like, look, if the director says they need to be next to you, that's it. You have to do it that way or you don't take the job. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, that's a great question. I would encourage the director through, uh, uh, well, it's not flattery because it's sincere, but saying, look, you have worked really hard yeah. to get this in the can. You need a break and you are going to c- come back That's to this right. film fresh. <laughs> if you take three weeks off in our case for us to put together an assembly cut, yeah. which is like collecting the prettiest pebbles on the beach, you know, all <laughs> the best footage in your 30 hours. We're going to shave it down to 90 minutes or 120 minutes and then come back and watch that. And we will collaborate. Yeah. Also directors think, I mean, in, Back in the day, um, it was common for directors and editors to sit down mm. and log the footage. That's mm. when there was 30 hours for a PBS hour-long doc. Yeah. Now there's so much footage shot, and 90% of the editing we do is remote editing. Our editors in, are in um, L.A., New York, San Francisco, and Portland. Um, so it just it doesn't make sense. But if an editor truly wants to sit down, we make we we arrange for that to happen. But you're right. Generally, it's in rough cut and especially fine cut stage where uh, either you're sharing screens if remotely or if or you're sitting together. Yeah. It, otherwise, you're not going to be able to give the editor the freedom to bring forth their best creative ideas. Mm, that's right. <laughs> Karen, at what point? Do we as doc filmmakers, at what point, what are the signs for us that we should be reaching out to someone like yourself? I, I mean, I'm glad that that you, you know, as a veteran filmmaker, you know to ask the question. Many first time filmmakers, and especially in the past, indie filmmakers didn't know to budget for a story consultant. Oh, or if yeah. they did, you know, it's when they have a rough cut. But I would say if you want to be a real intelligent and conscious producer, you know, my, my, this is self-serving, but I also believe it's true mm. that having somebody advise you on structure should be your number one expense in pre-production when you're developing a concept wow. and, and probably your number two expense in post and in production and post, mm. after, you know, after your director of photography, that, that should be uh, number one yeah. in production because that's what we're going to see on screen. Yeah. Uh, and then the, you know, the editor, I think, wh- how do you know if you need one, mm. um, well, let me just uh, throw out some some in pre-production some things that uh, you need to ask yourself if you're going to vet your concept. Yeah. Um, 
is is the film timely? Do, do people care about this topic? And if they don't, how can you how can how can you get them to care about Elvis in Cambodia, for mm, example? Mm, mm. Um, how's this film been done before? A lot of people don't take the time to research. And if so, that's okay. But what's your fresh angle? How can you contain the scope of the film? You're not making a film about violence in Cambodia. You're making a yeah. film about um, one man who touched many people through his music yeah. and um, was involved in horrible genocide. So um, yeah. another good question is, how well suited is this concept, this film idea, for a visual medium? You know, would it make a, ma- a better magazine piece? Right. And if your topic doesn't lend itself to a cinematic medium, for example, maybe yours didn't in the beginning, mm. can you find the archival material? Can you uh, employ animation, recreations? A lot of people don't realize that they, or a lot of filmmakers, that they need a story consultant until it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Well, when people cross the line from finishing principal photography yeah. from production yeah. to editing post-production, there is a shift that happens. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's also, it's almost like a mental health shift because, uh, suddenly they're, they're not out shooting. They're lonely. They've got all this, footage they don't know what to do with and and that's scary uh and a, and a second second time when people panic and say i need help yeah is when they've had a rough cut screening that that's difficult when you find out that people are usually it's one of two things or both the potential viewers of your rough cut or uh, or of your film are they're either bored or they're confused and a lot of what i do is helping make Boring films, dramatic. Um, our tagline is keeping your viewers glued to the screen. And, and in other words, make them more like narrative films or clarifying uh, confusing parts, often through some vehicle for, for exposition. So as you might expect, a lot of people come to a story consultant in post-production. And uh, I would say uh, the, the biggest problem in post-production with rough cuts is lack of momentum either in the beginning uh, so they'll need an inciting incident or they have no climax and uh, if 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 you don't mind i'd like to suggest a couple solutions if you don't have a climax for your film yeah i, I think i mentioned before keep shooting if you have a, a verte documentary um but remember a climax has got to be this uh, most emotional moment an emotional moment right right the most emotional moment in the film where ideally we see so visually, we see the protagonists making their greatest effort to to reaching their goal. And some sometimes the solution is to take a dramatic moment that happened earlier in the film, and this could be an historical film or it could be, you know, a, a current day uh, live action film, and move it to the end and frame it as a backstory. Oh wow. I don't. Did you ever happen to see? Um, there's a great example of this in a narrative film. Um, Barbara Streisand and Nick Nolte in a film called The Prince of Tides. Oh yes, of uh, course. The, <laughs> I read the book as well. You, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. So that horrible rape scene, uh, which is from the Nick Nolte's character's yeah. uh, childhood, is presented at the end. Now, for filmmakers who are making nonfiction films, what's becoming more of a trend as as the narrative and documentary worlds continue to inform one another and borrow from one another, arranging an encounter 
between, say, two antagonists yeah. or a protagonist and some other character uh, can produce a, a climactic moment often through – I mean you could just have two characters meet and see what happens. That happened in uh, Revenge of the Electric Car. The mm. producers arranged for the two competing car makers to meet at an auto show. They didn't script – the conversation uh, and subsequently it's not doesn't feel manipulative it's yeah. a dynamic scene but even if you just asked your subjects to have a uh, an argument on camera not like a fox news screaming at each other <laughs> argument but a respectful <laughs> argument that can often be very fruitful and we don't usually think of conversations as plot points or events but dialogue between people you know f- fairly frequently contains what you might call sort of incidents, you know, yeah. genuine blow by blow happenings, yeah. you know, people make headway, or they run into a conflict or they hit a stone wall. Mm. Michael Moore is a master of that technique. See, you might remember his, um, his climactic conversation in Bowling for Columbine yeah, with of course. Charles Heston. So the, I guess the, uh, the bottom line here is that conversations are inherently dynamic. And if you don't have a, a climax for your film yet, ask yourself who uh, who could my um, protagonist talk to yeah. to help them achieve their goal? And uh, often it's an antagonist. So, Karen, how can we reach out to you or how can we reach out to someone from New Doc Editing if we feel like we want to have a conversation about story consultation or perhaps helping us with our edits? What's the best way to um, that we can do that? Yep, two ways. And thanks for asking. This has been a great conversation, by the way. It's been lovely. Just email me at Karen. K-A-R-E-N at newdocediting.com. That's a, a long email, new, N-E-W, doc, D-O-C, editing.com. Uh, the other way is just to go to the website where you'll find lots of free in- information, not quite as much as on your wonderful website, um, but you can fill out a contact form there and love to hear from you. Um, we do give free 20-minute consultations to filmmakers that we think we can help. So please do reach out. And Chris, yes. thank you and Stephanie for everything you guys are doing. Your podcast is wonderful. I saw a lot of familiar names there who, <laughs> you know, people like Tom Powers and Maury Wachowski and Carol Dean yeah. who are, um, you, you're just making this uh, free advice available to, to help brave filmmakers. And um, I, I thank you. Well, I, I, I thank you very much for saying that. I am very appreciative of those of those kind words, Karen. I'm also appreciative of, of this conversation. Again, speaking doc filmmaker to doc filmmaker, editor to editor, I, I love these kinds of conversations. I, I live for them, and, and I think <laughs> that it's going to translate well to a lot of our audience. So, Karen Everett of New Doc Editing, thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. I, I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thanks, Chris. And don't forget, if you're looking to build a successful crowdfund campaign for your film, head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses today and get signed up for the How to Raise 8K in 18 Days for Your Documentary Film course. All right, we'll see you in two weeks' time, Doc Lifer. <laughs>